hard as I ever went to uh, go through my bicycle on a snowstorm to get to the liquor store. I will spend the same amount of energy, if not more, trying to find a healing path and recovery and bring as many brothers and sisters as I can with me. Welcome to Artist as Leader, where we explore the intersection of creativity and leadership. I'm Rob Kramer, founder and CEO of Kramer Leadership, whose mission is to advance leaders for the greater good. And I'm Carlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast brought to you by the Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. This week, we bring you Pierre Carlo's interview with master woodcarver Wayne Price. So, Pierre Carlo, can you tell us a little bit about Wayne, please? Wayne Price's artistry as a woodcarver in the Clinkett tradition of the Pacific Northwest Coast is recognized the world over. His work ranges from restoring or duplicating historic totem poles to creating ocean-going dugout canoes using ancient traditional techniques. His art has been displayed throughout Canada and his native Alaska, and as far away as Japan, where one of his canoes is on permanent display at the Hokkaido Museum. This past April, the Rasmussen Foundation, which each year recognizes one Alaska artist for a lifetime of creative excellence, named Wayne its 2020 Distinguished Artist. Now, throughout his training and his artistic career, Wayne has always been passionate about honoring and celebrating the traditions of his indigenous forebears. 17 years ago, though, when he received a spiritual mandate and embarked on his own sobriety, he sharpened the focus of his overall mission. He now uses his art as a healing tool to guide young people out of addiction and also to commemorate all the lives lost to the many traumas inflicted on indigenous peoples over the centuries. Wayne spoke to me from the studios of radio station KHNS in Haines, Alaska, where Wayne lives with his wife and collaborator, Sherry. One thing I want to mention and make clear is at one point in the interview, you'll hear Wayne refer to working with his dogs. Please know that he's not referring to pooches, although that would be an adorable <laughs> image. <laughs> he brings tons of dogs to help him work. Right. No, it's actually his affectionate term for his Yukon students at the Sundog Carving Studio. I just wanted to make that clear. I started the interview by asking him if he could start by telling us how he got to where he is today as an artist. It probably got started when I was around 12 years old here in Haines and uh, walked into the carving studio here called Alaska Indian Arts and smelled the red cedar and the yellow cedar, and I got to meet the uh, master carvers that taught me how to carve, um, Ed Casco, Leo Jacobs, Jenny Lynn Smith, Johnny Avatok, Clifford Thomas, John Hagen. Nathan Jackson was there for a while and started out making coffee and sweeping up wood chips. And I got a chance to paint a panel that was carved, and it all kind of evolved from then. Fifty years later, I'm still involved in the art world, and I've enjoyed a wonderful, wonderful career uh, being able to um, hammer out a living making art. Do you think of yourself as a leader? Uh, I I let the uh, public assume that if they if I'm called a master, then I let them call me a master 
or if I'm called a leader, I let the public make that assumption. I am an artist, and I've made a lot more wood chips than most people. But uh, I, I don't really uh, make those statements of my own. Those statements are made of me. So You had mentors as you were coming up as an artist. Did you think of them as leaders? Yes. Yeah. I had a deep respect for the carvers that were able to take me in and uh, show me techniques and what you can do with a knife, how to sharpen a knife, how to make tools, what makes it clinket art or Haida art or Simsian art. You know, there's so many things to learn after the actual carving starts that are very important. You, you have to start to uh, take a little bit in every day, and I can still continue to learn from the students I now have in my uh, carving classes at the UAS as Associate Professor of Northwest Coast Native Arts. Uh, they, they still come up with fresh ideas that I haven't ever heard of, and uh, some of them are pretty good ideas, you know, so you, you can't stop learning about the art, and, and you'll never learn at all. There's it's an ever-opening book of culture and knowledge to learn. And then you decided at a certain point to use your craft and your arts as a tool for healing. Yes. When and how did that happen? Uh, I spent a great part of my career surviving as an artist, and the, the big goal was to have artwork in the Legacy Gallery in First Avenue in Seattle. And I accomplished that. You know, I had four or five pieces in their front window at one point in my career. And I stood in front of the window and uh, looked across the street, the honking cars and noise and stoplights and traffic and people. And I said, you know, is, is this it? You know, after a lot of hard work trying to get my work there and... Uh, I wasn't quite uh, happy with the view or the result. And uh, also during uh, most of my career involved a lot of uh, mind changing with uh, alcohol and drugs. And uh, 17 years ago, I was at the uh, Pilchuck Class School in Stanwood, Washington, and I got involved with uh, uh, Sweat Lodge. and. We did artwork and we did sweats and did artwork and did some more sweats and it was stretched out over a couple of weeks and it was at the end of the big sweat on the end of two weeks that um, I was granted what some people call a vision and uh, the creator that keeps me sober told me I had to do a few things. I had to... Uh, create a healing dugout. I had to create a healing totem. During that time, I wasn't feeling very good about myself. And I asked, I said, okay, uh, I've made a lot of totems and I've made a lot of dugouts. How do you make a healing one? And the creator told me, as we are having a conversation, that uh, it was like that, that um as I'm making a healing dugout, that every chip that comes off the 
healing dugout represents a life we've lost to alcohol and drugs in indigenous country. And that of all the chips that come off the dugout is the name of someone, is a broken home, it's a broken family, that there will never be enough chips. And that uh, brings light to the situation that we're dealing with, that even to this very day. And uh, every time that my wife and I have done a healing project, every time we find that to be way too true. And not only indigenous, this um, plague belongs to everybody and it touches everybody's lives. So uh, every time I get a calling to do one, I complete it and uh, there seems to be a calling to do another. How did you put this vision that you received into action? Like, what happened the day after the sweat lodge? I believed that I'd go home, uh, do the vision, get on back to business, go back to work. There's no way that I could have ever conceived that it would uh, evolve into what it has turned into in reality. That, uh, first of all... uh, Everybody told us no. Uh, Even leading Native corporations said no. All the funding sources told us no, 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 no. In fact, we had a pretty blunt start of about six years to the point of, uh, well, that was a good idea, uh, but we got to work. I kicked around pursuing uh, something else in the lines of making a living. And it was my beautiful wife that uh, kept the pressure uh, that this is what we got to do. And uh, we took a drive to Whitehorse in 2008. And uh, we drove down Two Mile Hill. We went past the McDonald's uh, on the left and we went through a stoplight. And on the right-hand side, there's a sign over a building that's uh, welcome in the Sundog Carving Studio. And uh, we turned around and pulled into the parking lot. And I walked in to a room full of at least 20, 25 students that were all involved in, uh, in some form of doing some carving. And honest to God, they were the wildest bunch I've ever seen in my whole life. You know, a lot of them were homeless on the streets and still. But the one thing that was very much in common was that they were all trying to be carvers. I said, this is it. And uh, I brought a piece of my artwork and I talked with them all. And it led to uh, Heather and Andrew Finton. Uh, Andrew was a high school uh, shop teacher, and he noticed the kids didn't drop out if they were able to carve form line and do some art. So he let them do form line and art, and then they evolved it into a branch of their uh, bed and breakfast business, and it caught on from there. And uh, they'd been going rough and tumble for uh, a few years, and then I showed up, and uh, I walked up and introduced myself to Heather. I said, you need me. This is, we, we got to talk. And uh, well, over a dinner at the Heather and Andrew's place, we, I said, you know, I have this idea. You, you cannot heal 
healthy trees in unhealthy dirt. If you want to make healthy trees, you have to have healthy dirt. And what I meant was that we have to remove the unhealthy trees from the unhealthy dirt and take them to where the healthy dirt is. What that means is that we eventually put our heels together and we said agreed we were going to try and do this. Andrew was a pit bull for seeking funding and support. And in the summer of 2009, I took 19 young people to an island on the Yukon River and we secured a tree in Terrace, B.C. And we took that log all the way from Terrace, all the way to Whitehorse, to the Yukon River, and we towed it up the river to that island all by hand. And there's a, uh, there's no machinery. We took the log, that is 15,000 pounds, out of the Yukon River and up the bank, and we pulled it into 165 feet till we get to level ground. You have to build a dugout where it's level. And we all camped on that island, and we stayed there uh, for two and a half months. And we turned that log that was rotten and cracked and had a lot of damage. And I said, that's just like us. We fix this log, and then we fix us. And we all stayed out there. There's no alcohol, no drugs. And we stayed camped out there and completed a 30-foot dugout canoe that by mid-August we were able to paddle that canoe off that island and take the children back home. And that was the a big start for doing the healing dugouts and uh, a, a very successful project that we had uh, uh, almost a 50% recovery rate. So. Wow, that's great. So you've been sober now yourself for many years. Uh, and it sounds like you work with a lot of young people who are just getting sober themselves. So I'm guessing they're very vulnerable and raw. What have you had to learn about leading them through a project like this at that particular point in their lives when they're first encountering sobriety? I think that um, the flow of life today is one of electronics that's designed to bring us all together in communication, and it doesn't. It does not do that. It separates and isolates. The more that we, as a people, remember our culture and remember our past, that the Pacific Northwest Coast Native art as a culture and a history has been going for 10,000 years, and it should never be doubted. And it, it got us through the hardest of times, and it got us through the best of times. And it will con it's never let us down, and uh, it's going to continue to take care of us and watch over us. Also, that uh, the mind changers were never part of our culture. It was never who we are. It doesn't belong to us. This was introduced, and uh, the... Uh, uh, introduction of the boarding schools and uh, the introduction of the mind changers led to the, the decimation of whole cultures to complete extinction. And uh, the results from that are still being felt within the indigenous people today. I really like the way you're describing drugs and alcohols as mind changers. 
In effect, it sounds like you're leading these young people back to their truest minds and selves. Everyone. There's a sacred circle, and everything that's indigenous is done in a circle, not in a straight line. And we always have the circle, and we always have the four directions. And within that circle and the four directions, there's divided into quarters, and there's the red, red, yellow, black, and white. That's red people, yellow people, black people, and white people. That is a very old, old symbol that goes way back. That should be being paid a lot more attention than it is, and that uh, a lot of the uh, unrest that we're going through now is uh, probably uh, neglect of uh, our actually true history, that what we are and who we are as human beings. And then you add the mind changes to it, and it escalates to bad choices. So uh, the end result can only be uh, all of what we're seeing, and uh, it's not going to change until uh, they start making some better choices in the long run. We're living in a time that does feel sick a little bit. I mean, there's literally the pandemic, and uh, at least in the United States, we're finally reckoning with a long, poisonous history of injustice. When you think about the role of artists, including yourself, in this world, what would you want to tell artists all over the world and in any culture? What would you like them to do to help people find themselves again in this particular time in history? Well, let's not forget the role art plays in all cultures. Uh, I go back and think of the uh, terrible fire in France of the church that was a thousand years old, and that as the fire was burning, they weren't necessarily putting the fire out so much as uh, running in to the fire and saving the art. That's how important it was to try and save all they could during that terrible tragedy. And that uh, in all cultures, art means enough to somebody that a person who has nothing to do with it and he's just a fireman would run in and grab artwork into a burning building and then try and carry it back out. So, um, you know, art is a foundation of a lot of cultures, not just my own, and that uh, the role and the language and the meaning of that art is uh, sometimes cannot be stated in words. It's more of a feeling. And uh, if we do that art correctly, people will get a feeling from that artwork. Uh, I know I've heard stories of the healing totem I did in the Main Street in Whitehorse by the Yukon River. It was a 40-foot totem I did with my dogs that uh, addressed the atrocities of the residential schools in Canada, North America, South America, and Australia. And it was the first monument ever done that even acknowledged what happened during those times and how bad it really was. People that come to that art are, uh, without seeing the story, without knowing anything about what that totem means, they get a feeling from it. And... Uh, if you go to that totem now, there's coins that are put into the cracks 
and uh, sage uh, prayer packets are left, and uh, people leave tokens um, at this piece of art. And some of them know what it is, some of them don't. Some of them just get that feeling just from the art. So as an artist, when you can get into that part of uh, creating healing uh, with art, then uh, the results could be great and many. And uh, I'm not the only one that can do this. There's got to be others. It's been going for a long time. Even when we were carving the totem itself, uh, we were by the Yukon River, and they were worried about the uh, river people, and that's homeless people, and they're all inebriates, um, condemning and uh, sabotaging the art, and uh, they, we call them our teachers because they teach us how not to live. And we got to talk with them, and uh, they said, hey, what's this totem you're making? And I said, well, this is a totem that addresses the residential school atrocities of all the students that were in the boarding schools. And this is a healing totem that uh, we're creating so that uh, maybe they can be acknowledged and find closure. 100% of every one of those homeless people was residential school. 100%, every one of them. And I told them, I said, I'm carving this totem for you. You got to watch it. You got to take care of it. You got to watch for it. You got to guard for it. I'm asking you to be its protectors. And uh, there's a lot of reasons for those coins to disappear on that totem, and they never do. They leave it alone. You described earlier in this interview the moment when you had a piece of yours in a fancy Seattle gallery. And you ask yourself, is this it? So are you where you want to be now? I'm enjoying the second chance that I've gotten in my earth time to the fullest every day. As my, I'm doing exactly what I need to do and I'm with who I want to be with and I'm accomplishing the goals that uh, are brought before me. That's uh, if I'm if the calling is for me to be there, then I'll probably be there. So, Rob, what do you think Wayne can teach us about how to lead? One of the big things that jumped out to me, Pierre Carlo, first and foremost, was um, how much the power of spirit was a guide for him. And I wanted to, to sort of distinguish and tease out that's different from what I would call our traditional discussions we've had about being self-led, uh, you know, uh, and making choices about how to improve ourselves or trust our instincts. I, I really had the the sense that that his connection to spirit, his connection to ancestry, was a a profound way that he was led through his choices. What do you think of that? Yeah, I thought it was uh, so profound and powerful uh yet at the same time it is it, it, he does have to be self-led it's not like his, the creator every morning gives him a to-do list <laughs> right um he's right he was he's given a mandate uh and i think that's what artists do i think artists do connect to something deeply spiritual whether they call it creator or not and in the end uh they they they're the ones who have to make their to-do list 
Yeah, I think in the past, maybe we've talked about the example of being in the flow where it's almost unconscious and it's happening and flowing through you. Um, and for him, maybe it's, uh, you know, in my world, we uh, I'll work with clients a lot around uh, the use of contemplation and introspection. Uh -huh. And perhaps that's part of what's at play here for him. The other thing I love about it, and you can tell in the way he tells his stories, is there's a diligence to his work. Everything has clear and carefully delineated steps. I'm thinking of the story he tells about when he went to that gallery where he saw the students, the, where he got his idea to teach. And just the way he described that story, going down the hill, there's a McDonald's, McDonald's on the left, yeah. and you can make a right. <laughs> uh, is the way I bet he does his art is it's uh, he contemplates each step. And just thinking about, I think, for people coming into sobriety, it's um, one day at a time. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. That in that that kind of contemplation and slow and quiet diligence makes it makes him a perfect person to heal someone who's trying to enter sobriety. I, I think you raise an important point there, Pierre Carlo, which is we gain insight potentially to how his process works, how his mind works, how his worldview is based on his the way he communicates and his language. And and it's an important lesson for us as any of us trying to develop our skills as leaders is our ability to recognize and listen for the cues that are happening around us and the way people communicate to us can be a wealth of information. Certainly for me as an executive and leadership coach, I'm constantly tuning into tone, choice of wording, the way they tell a story, all as a way to get an indication of how they're viewing their situation. And any of mm -hmm. us can start to develop a fine acuity to that to really gain insight to how people are experiencing their lives and experiencing their work, experiencing their challenges. Uh, and it's a great way to build partnership. And it starts with what I call conscious listening. And conscious speaking. And conscious speaking. And they're, and they're connected. Yeah, and he was yeah. really a great example for us of that. So I really appreciate you introducing us to him, Pierre Carlo. Oh, it was it was a great honor to speak with him. If you'd like to learn more about Wayne uh, and read a longer version of this interview, please go to uncsa.edu slash artist is leader. If you enjoyed this interview, please leave us a rating or a comment wherever you get your podcasts. And please be sure to subscribe. You don't want to miss the next fascinating interviews that we have in store. Big thanks to Lisa Deemer at the Rasmussen Foundation and to Marley Horner at KHNS in Haynes, Alaska. Our theme music is by The Dimes. I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti. And I'm Rob Kramer. Thanks so much for listening.